At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Today, I'm talking with a philosopher. His name is uh, Peter Sojdet Hughes. Uh, he's at the University of Exeter. And his particular research interest is in the relationship of psychedelics and philosophy. Uh, so welcome, Peter. Thank you, David. Pleasure to uh, speak with you again. Yes, uh, we were on a panel, weren't we, at uh, How the yeah. Light Gets In, I think. Yeah. And uh, we realised that there's more overlap between psychedelics and philosophy than I might have imagined. And uh, why, don't you, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got into this field, and then we'll talk about the field itself. Yeah, okay. Well, I, um, so I studied uh, Western philosophy when, you know, as a bachelor, got into sort of um, the Germans, mostly Kant and so on, um, as a master's. And then I got into the philosophy of mind. And then I um, got a job in London teaching uh, philosophy and um, at a college there in South Kensington. One part of that was, well, the college wrote me into doing um, philosophy of religion, which was not really my area. But I thought, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. You know, I'll, I'll look and research it. And part of the research was William James, especially his varieties of religious experience, you see. But I had never really had a so-called mystical experience. But then when I came back to Cornwall on a, on a holiday, uh, we went through some fields for a walk here in Western Cornwall. And my brother, who's an amateur mycologist, said, listen, Peter, I think, I think those are some magic mushrooms there. And I thought, hmm, maybe I can, uh, for academic purposes, I can... Um, you know, maybe try these out and uh, get a experiential account of what William James was saying. So I picked about a hundred, which, and I've never found more since. You know, one spot. <laughs> Strip them out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, 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 you know, looked them up and on the internet to make sure they were, you know, legitimate, not mm -hmm. poisonous, whatever. And they seemed the real deal. And um, dried them. Took them back to London. Took a small amount, first of all, just to make sure, you know, I wouldn't die. I uh, went to the cinema, saw an amazing 3D film, which I later realized wasn't in 3D. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, I, um, then I took a big dose after that. And it was a life-changing experience, incredibly, well, you know all about that, the, the incredible psychedelic experience. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at the philosophy of mind literature, you know, in relation to the psychedelic experience to sort of find out more about this. And I was surprised that there was relatively little literature on it. So then I thought, okay, well, someone has to take a stab at this. So that that's what got me um, involved, really, maybe 10 years ago or so. Since then, I uh, did a PhD in Exeter, uh, lecturer there now, associate lecturer, research fellow, and my um, I'm organizing the first ever Philosophy of Psychedelics conference next to university, uh, which was scheduled a few months ago, but it got... Uh, postponed, obviously, due to this virus. Uh, but it will take place now in April 2021. Good. We, we'll make sure that plug goes out on the, on the tweet. And the, No, seriously, very important. It's yeah. the first ever. But, but as you say, if, when you started looking into it, you 
you kind of realised that actually you weren't the first. It's hard to know who was the first, but possibly William James. And now, I mean, he's a great, he's, I'm a great fan of William James. Uh, as presumably, are you? Are you a fan of his? Oh, yeah, mass- massively. I mean, he's um, extremely influential. White, Alfred North Whitehead, another philosopher I, I, um, I'm keen on, he says um, William James had never had a system, but his, he had these incredibly insightful glimpses into the human condition. And, uh, you know, you always get something new every time you read him. Brilliant writer, very insightful, and um, scholarly at the same time. So we understand, I think, I mean, you probably know more than I do, that he used to, I think he probably tried mescaline, and I think he tried nitrous oxide, and he, mm-hmm. it was from those that he began to say things like, there's more than one kind of consciousness. Yeah. The problem is how to dis- how to actually explore them. And uh, yeah. Well, one one of his criteria for um, defining the mystical experience, as he calls it in the varieties of religious experience, is ineffability, you know, that you can't find words mm. for this. Um, but he says that, and then he spends another, what, like um, 100 pages writing about it. <laughs> so it's not quite true. It's desperately trying to find the word. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Well, Humphrey Davy before him also spoke about ineffability. I mean, this was... Um, Probably not everyone knows who Humphrey Davy is. Mm. So do you want to give us a little potted history? Because he's one of my heroes also. How is he? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I assume that merely because I've lived under his shadow. I mean, literally, um, for many years, he's, his statue um, crowns the high street of Penzance, which is uh-huh. a westerly city, uh, town. He called himself a chemical philosopher, which is a term I know we both love. And, I mean, in those days, so I'm talking 200 years ago now or more, um, there was not this distinction between science and philosophy that we have today. So he he was brought up in Penzance, but he went to Bristol, Clifton, to study gases, which were the big, you know, uh, the big uh, cure-all at, at the time. So they believed. We'd call him today a chemist. He's famous in Cornwall for inventing the miner's safety lamp. Right. Saved many people, and that's mm. on his statue now, this lamp. Yeah, so one of the gases he tried was nitrous oxide. And um, Mm -hmm. at the time, it was believed, I mean, this is 1799, it was believed that it was poisonous. But he took a bit and quite enjoyed it. And he took a bit more. And eventually, on Boxing Day in 1799, he stepped into this um, TARDIS, really, and and took 160 pints of the gas. And as he stepped out, he uh, took another uh, uh, 40 pints for good measure. And a sort of, so he immersed himself. He went into a, yeah. a sealed room, immersed himself in nitrous oxide. Okay, That's right. And um, That's laughing gas for those people who don't know. And, um, and as a result of it, he's, he, he said, nothing exists but thought. So he, he came to this, what ah. we call in philosophy, uh, idealist position, that uh, mind was fundamental over matter. Of course, at the time, German idealism was taking hold in Britain. He was friends with Coleridge and Wordsworth, people like mm-hmm. that, who um, savvy, who were very much into um, that German idealism. But nonetheless, it's interesting that the first, the first time he took it, he he was led to this, or at least he was became more certain about this particular philosophical mm-hmm. position. And he coined the term chemical philosopher, did he? Uh, to my knowledge, I mean, he calls himself that. That's brilliant. Um, yeah. <laughs> and of course, in those days, everything was legal, so it was no problem. You're actually, you were discovering things, and that was all that mattered, really. Yeah, and um, he, um, I mean, he also tried other gases like carbon monoxide, <laughs> which wasn't that pleasant, ah. you know. <laughs> but, no, quite, but he's, so he's lucky to be alive. <laughs> in a way, yeah, yeah. He also took a lot of opium, and um, he wrote this great book in 1829, Confessions of a Philosopher. And um, the first chapter is like a like a psychedelic trip. I mean, it's a great piece of literature, certainly worth reading. 
Actually, no, it's called The Last Days of a Philosopher. Is it still in print? Uh, I think so, yeah. I got a copy. And um, I mean, it was published in 1830, written in 1829. He died in 1829, so posthumous. So you're going to argue he was the, the beginnings of... Uh, 200 years of, of philosophers or chemists or pharmacologists like me getting insights into brain and consciousness through drugs. Yeah, I mean, he was, I've called him the first psychedelic scientist. I think that's fair. Yeah, other people talk about Hefter as that because he was the first person yeah, to, sure. to isolate what we would call a kind of classic psychedelic now, wouldn't he? That's true, yeah. Which was mescaline. I mean, this is a question yeah. of how you, how you define psychedelics. I mean, um, you know, are they just tryptamines or do you extend more. I mean, there was Thomas de Quincey of the same time as well. He was mm -hmm. wrote Confessions of an English Opium Eater. And of course, we don't normally call opium a psychedelic, but some of the experiences were pretty psychedelic. Mm -hmm. He was also a Kantian Indeed. idealist. He was um, one of the first English com um, commenters on Kant's philosophy as well. So there's this interesting really? beginnings of philosophy and psychedelic uh, experimentation in Britain, especially. And we were leading the world then. Yeah, but then, uh, <laughs> but then everyone sort of forgot about it. Well, then we had James, of course, he was American. Mm. And uh, I mean, most people don't know that he he had insights about consciousness, consciousness from using drugs like nitrous oxide and, yeah, I mean, and mescaline. It's quite interesting. He, he said um, only through nitrous oxide did he understand Hegel's philosophy, William James said. Uh, well, and, and Hegel's philosophy is a type of idealism as well. So very much like um, Humphrey Davy. But these connections which were made early on were sort of lost. And that's why it was a bit surprising to find that there is not much literature on it. Of course, mm -hmm. there is James and a bit of Davy and so on, but but relatively little. Do you think it was lost or was it suppressed? Uh, well, I mean, was it, presumably it became un, uh, politically very dangerous, you know, to research these things. Yeah. Um, I mean, two reasons really inter interwoven, which was that in the... Uh, in the mid-20th century, you know, with the first psychedelic wave in the West, really, mm -hmm. philosophy was in a very eliminativist, reductivist phase in terms of mind. So in those days, it was very common to think of consciousness as an illusion or um, as mm -hmm. the words mental words for mental states being merely um, reference to forms of behavior and so on. So unfortunately, just when everyone got, you know, with Leary and so on, when everyone got uh, interested in psychedelic experience, philosophy of mind was at its most um, sort of uh, reductivist stage. I see. So they yeah. didn't come together then. Was there suppression? I mean, obviously, the um, then the criminalization of psychedelic use stopped funding and um, also, the propaganda about their dangers stopped philosophers mm -hmm. from messing with their minds, as they might have believed. There was actually one one um, interesting uh, event that might have happened. It didn't, unfortunately, but there was it was Huxley and uh, mm -hmm. Osmond, and uh, with some help from um, Smithies and others, to create a, the Outside Project, which was a project to Outside. Outside, yeah. So it was a project in the mid 1950s to bring together 100 leading thinkers including Einstein and Jung and H.H. Uh, ah. Price and uh, Graham Greene even and, and, and um, A.J. Eyre. Anyway, and, um, and, and okay. to give them all mescaline yeah. and then convey that experience to the world. So there could have been, and they wanted f funding from the Ford Foundation, but they didn't, yeah. they, they, they almost got it, but they didn't in the end, unfortunately. So then that went... Um, quiet until 10 years later, Timothy Leary, of course, made a big song and dance about it and then um, got out of hand, it seems. He didn't have quite have the same credentials as, uh, as Einstein. No, though. no. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think it would be fascinating. If Einstein had started 
campaigning for the use of psychedelics. Mm. Maybe even even the FDA would have listened. I think if that outside event, if it had occurred, then the whole history after that would be very different. Mm. And it would be much more academically respectable to um, look into these things. Unfortunately, what happened, of course, as we all know, it became uh, sort of mainstream linked with uh, hippie demographic, which Nixon was uh, very much against, of course, then became criminalized Mm. through the war of drugs. And now we think of psychedelic experience in terms of criminality and recreation and so on, which is unfortunate because they are, of course, massive expanders of consciousness. I mean, there are, I'm sure, philosophers who say, yeah, but it's all its all just a drug effect, isn't it? <laughs> what do you say to them? It's all a drug effect with consciousness. Well, yeah, okay, so here we come to philosophy of mind. <laughs> yeah, go on then. So how- be, be gentle with us, be gentle, <laughs> <Okay>. right? <laughs> all right. Um, so philosophy, I mean, there are different approaches to the mind. As you know, there's uh, neuroscience, there's psychology, different psychologies. Philosophy of mind is another way. There's theology as well, of course. Philosophy of mind, the main question really, ultimately, is what is the relation between matter and mind? How do we understand it? And there are, I think, five main responses to that question. The one that we that is default in the West today, due to our history, I think, starting with Descartes, is physicalism or materialism, which is that um, the fundamental blocks of the universe are matter. Another popular response is dualism, which is that there are two fundamental substances, which is mm-hmm. which are matter and mind. So the soul and the mm-hmm. body. This, is, of course, is common in uh, the religious field. You know, so the soul can leave the body when it's dead. Yes. There's a third option, which is idealism, which I mentioned in relation to Davy and James. Well, could you just maybe explain a little bit more? Because I don't know what that means. Idealism. Okay, so it it really should be called ideaism. Ah. The epitome of it is from the philosopher Immanuel Kant, who lived 200 years ago. And it's this, the idea is that uh, mind is fundamental, the fundamental Mm -hmm. aspect of the universe. And we project what we Mm -hmm. consider to be matter onto reality. So it's as if we're projecting uh, the space and time and causality Mm -hmm. around us. But ultimately, the real thing is mind. This is idealism. As I Mm -hmm. say, it was popular Mm -hmm. in um, Germany 200 years ago and became popular in the 19, early 1900s, late 1800s in mm-hmm. Cambridge. You had people like uh, McTaggart, who was very much influenced by it. Okay, right, good. That's three. And what were the other That's two? That's three. Um, a fourth one is panpsychism. I mean, these interweave with idealism and, and dualism to a certain extent, and physicalism. But panpsychism is a view that mind is inherent within matter. So all of matter has oh. very primitive, basic, primal forms of mind, by which I don't mean the consciousness of what you did last weekend with your friends, obviously in a human sense, mm-hmm. but, you know, primitive, something akin to perhaps a subconscious. So plants would, in this panpsychism, plants would have a primitive form of maybe mm-hmm. a sensation and uh, some kind of pleasure, perhaps pain. This is what the ancient, many ancient Greeks believed, like Plato. It's definitely becoming fashionable again, I said. New scientists has something on this about every other week. Right, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, Christoph Koch is a panpsychist now explicitly. Uh-huh. Tononi, arguably. Um, it's it's entering the scientific field. It's become popular oh, in philosophy. Yeah. I'm quite sympathetic to it. And um, William James, I should say, uh, towards the end of his career, became a panpsychist in a book called mm-hmm. The Pluralistic Universe. There's that option. And then uh, the fifth one, is what one can call neutral monism, which is that, well, two forms of it, really. One is that um, 
mind and matter emerge from a neutral substance, so neither mind nor matter, or mm -hmm. mind and matter are both different aspects of something greater, uh -huh. like in Spinoza's philosophy, perhaps. But like I say, that you divide these up in order to teach them and to uh, get people to yes. get the basic views. But in reality, they they're all very much interwoven. So Spinoza is also known as a panpsychist. He's also known as a physicalist, for that matter. So come back to your original question then. When people say, "Yeah, but it's just um, machinations of the brain or something," you know, a certain experience. I mean, that assumes that the fundamental aspect of reality is matter. When you say the brain, you mean the material brain, mm -hmm. right? And this is problematic. I mean, all of those five responses to the mind-matter mystery are problematic. And so mm. I've got certainty in none of them. However... That's presumably why there are so many of yeah, them, because you can't, exactly. <laughs> none of them is completely satisfactory. Precisely. Um, and uh, But, you know, physicalism, which, I, like I, I mean, I was brought up here in England mostly. I mean, this is sort of not, it wasn't spoken about, like, this is what we believe and what you mm. have to believe. It's rather, this was a default view. And of course, you know, not doing philosophy in English schools, you don't realize any problems with it. But there are many problems. <laughs> um, for example, I mean, there are different forms of physicalism. Is mind identical to matter? Does mind emerge mm. from matter, which is a prevalent view? And when you say that mind emerges mm -hmm. from matter, what do you mean by that? It's not something that is observable, obviously. And uh, we don't have mm. bridge laws to explain that. So it's sort of not scientific in that sense. And also, that you know, as well as this so-called upward causation, we also have the problem of downward causation or mental causation, which is um, how does the mind uh, thinking, desiring, mm. calculating, planning things, mm. how can that possibly have any effect on the brain? Because, you know, uh, there's no there's yeah. no known mental force in nature. It's not part of the scientific you mean, point of view. To paraphrase you, you mean, how can our thoughts turn into action? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. How, what is that process? Yeah, quite... exactly. I mean, it's, um, and it's very problematic because, you know, there's two res main responses to that. One is you deny it. You like people deny free will and they say, well, it's just an illusion. Mm -hmm. The problem with that, though, is that... Um, there's an evolutionary argument against it, for example, from uh, Karl Popper, which is, why would we have evolved the mind at all if it has no power? Mm. Also, it seems counterintuitive, of course, you know, when you're really trying to work something out, like Hegel or whatever, you know, yeah. it's, you, that effort, that mental effort, that that is mm. completely uh, impotent, just seems very counterintuitive. And also, surely our human intelligence changes as, you know, improved our civilization. Uh, I mean, the conscious intelligence, you know, so very few people are willing to endorse uh, the fact that there's no mental causation known as epiphenomenalism. Mm. It was Thomas Huxley who came up with that, in fact, which was Aldous Huxley's grandfather. Yes. So he said that the epiphenomenalism is the view that consciousness is like the steam coming out of a locomotive. You, you know, it just has no power uh, whatsoever. But that's that's got a lot of problems in evolutionary terms. And so then you're back with, okay, we accept mental causation, but then the problem is how does one explain it in a physicalist framework if one is to maintain a physicalist framework? And so the other response then is you, you say, okay, let's start again. Let's then reject that physicalist framework and see if there are more parsimonious ways of explaining this relationship between mind and matter. Panpsychism is one of those. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the drug science community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a drug science community member, You'll be helping us bring about change. 
You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all drug science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. Are these uh, currently taught in undergraduate philosophy courses? Is, is, is the philosophy of mind a major theme now in philosophy? Yeah, it is. It is really. I mean, I mean, Descartes, who um, starts, mm-hmm. you know, is, is philosophy 101, founder of modern philosophy, founder of modern mathematics, well, for that matter. Philosophy mm-hmm. undergrads, year one, usually starts with the whole thing about, you know, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. And then that mm-hmm. leads to his dualism that mind and matter must be separate because they appear so distinct. And then you have the interaction problem. Well, how do they interact? This is a big problem, right? And um, and then that leads then naturally into philosophy of mind. I was struck uh, a few years ago, there was a survey of um, drug use in undergraduates and they were ranked according to uh, their, their topic. And the most remarkable, I think it was 80% of philosophy students had used an illegal drug. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose fits with the idea, you know, you do philosophy because you want to understand things and, and drugs somehow facilitate that but but in your your experience and your reading how how do drugs facilitate that i think in a number of ways um in one way purely negatively so for example uh, what was prevalent in mid-20th century behaviorism which is um like i said the view that mental states don't exist when we say happy what we're really referring to is smiling or laughing or jumping or something like this i mean immediately you take uh-huh. you take a psych you know you take a heavy dose of psilocybin and you're sort of flawed and you can't move hardly, but yeah. then your, you know, your phenomenology, your experience is massively expanded. That immediately mm-hmm. pushes that that out of the window. Or even other more extreme, I mean, eliminativism in philosophy says that there is no consciousness at all. It's an illusion. I mean, when you have these intense experiences, this, I mean, mm. but these are silly anyway. In other terms, it's well known that psychedelics foster a, a heightened appreciation of nature. Mm. And... Um, now, why would this be necessarily, right? So there are certain metaphysical theories, philosophies, that aid the explanation of that. For example, Whitehead's philosophy, he's a type of panpsychist or pan-experientialist. He writes that then all of uh, nature is essentially uh, sentient to different degrees, and valuation is part of that nature. And um, mm. our normal mode of... We have evolved to um, emphasize certain forms of sensation, like uh, color and sound and so on. But -hmm. there is a primitive form of sensation or perception, prehension he calls it, which um, takes in exterior valuation. It's absorbed, as it were. Now, this is mostly mostly hidden from us because we are very complicated organisms, as I say. Mm -hmm. But um, one explanation of why psychedelics lead to an increased valuation of nature is because they allow for this mode of perception to be amplified uh, because they take away practical concerns. Interesting, isn't it? So that sort of fits a little bit with the kind of neuroscience we've done where you, you see that psychedelics do disrupt conventional ongoing mental processes, many of which are, are related to concerns like anxiety and worry. Mm. So the brain is get, the brain is kind of getting in the way then, yeah, of, of normal consciousness. Interesting. That's why um, your study on um, psilocybin inhibiting certain neural mechanisms was very much compatible with Bergson's philosophy, 
And Bergson influenced Aldous Huxley in The Doors of Perception. That was his um, mode of, mm -hmm. his, his reference for understanding mm -hmm. the mescaline experience. And it was this, that the function of the body is in the, in, on the whole eliminative. In other words, it eliminates most of the environment so that we only see that which is of use to us, you know, of evolutionary mm -hmm. use ultimately. Uh, we, I mean, mm -hmm. in, a, in a very basic sense, we don't see... Uh, most of the frequencies of electromagnetism, for example, because it's yeah, no, because it's of no no use mm -hmm. to us. But once one shuts down that practical mechanism, suddenly one is more open to, uh, as it were, more of what is out there. And um, this is what Ber Bergson argued, uh, and this is what Huxley argued. So it would make sense that taking psychedelics would actually reduce. Uh, bodily physiological activity, and and mm -hmm. that's what you showed interestingly. Mm -hmm. But there's much more work to be done there, of course, to look at the details and so on. And I realise it's all a new science ultimately, but nonetheless, there are interesting parallels. Yeah, I'm fascinated, and, and that's why I wanted you on the program. I'm fascinated by the idea that that this kind of science can inform philosophy. Clearly, you believe it can because you're encouraging that this kind of science. Absolutely, I mean. Um, you know, at the very least, it can inform our knowledge of neural, the neural correlates of consciousness, which is, mm -hmm. um, you know, an important part of the philosophy of mind, at the very least. And, um, but even more so, it might be able to inform forms of metaphysics. This is what I'm mostly interested in. Would there be scope for an experimental, expanding experimental research to help you? I mean, are there experiments we could do that could help you address some of the issues? I think there is. Um, but generally speaking, though, with metaphysics and philosophy of mind, uh, the method is usually inference to the best explanation. It's more logical method, you know, that you find in mathematics rather than mm -hmm. empirical science. And the reason is, the reason for that really is another big problem related to the mind-matter mystery, which is the so-called problem of other minds, which is that um, one can only perceive one's own mind. One can't, I can't. I can infer what you're thinking by your behavior and your speech and so on, but I can't actually see your 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 mind. Mm. And so, when we speak about uh, the mind of other creatures, uh, other humans, but also other animals and so on, um, the empirical mm. method is, you know, limited really in that sense. Because, for example, if we if we were to let's say I make a proposition that uh, plants have a basic form of sentience. Mm -hmm. There are many new experiments now in mm -hmm. terms of sensation. So we know, uh, I was reading recently that um, uh, certain plants can hear bees around them. Yeah. Um, leaves can sense a variety of colors. So leaves are, in, in a sense, eyes and so on. Mm -hmm. But of course, that doesn't prove that they have sentience. You know, one could say, mm -hmm. well, that's purely mechanistic. And so how would one create an experiment which would show that? Well, let's stick with humans. Let's stick with humans because we kind of have we have some idea of how to do experiments with humans. The concept of understanding other people's minds is that people on the psychedelics often have that sense. Mm. Uh, one of the podcasts in this series was with Dave Luke, and he's actually trying to do some research on the concept of sort of precognition. That would be an amazing experiment if you could enhance precognition with a psychedelic. That would be. Some people would would say you could, and that, and if you could do that, that if you could prove that, that would be quite remarkable. Absolutely, I mean that that would be a good uh, good test. I mean, if it was not proved, would it be falsified though? That'd be an interesting uh, outcome as well. Yeah, no lose experiment. <laughs> one one thing I would um, be interested in, I suppose, is if there were further tests 
that could show that decreased um, neural activity was correlated to increased phenomenology. That would be fascinating mm -hmm. because sometimes, for example, sometimes we say that, you know, the condition, the necessary condition for, let's say, uh, visualizing a color is activity in the occipital lobe. You know, you, you know better yep. than I where that, where that might be. But if there were some kind of um, experiments whereby that was halted, and yet colors were, were still seen, we would know then that that part of the brain was not a necessary condition for vision. Mm -hmm. And that would be very interesting because that would mean that for a start then we could not identify, like equate, make numerically identical mm -hmm. a color with that particular brain activity. And that would be interesting in itself because that would then rule out the uh, psychoneural identity theory I was I was mentioning. Yeah, you know it would. That would yes, you'd have to do that probably with cooling or some kind of ultrasonic. You know, it's not it's not inconceivable. You you know, if we can mm. actually shut off that area. You know, it's a, it's an interesting thought experiment. That yeah, it's, it may be practical at some point. Another interesting one would be um, related to mental causation, so that the mind has an effect yeah. on the body. I mean, we in in a way it's assumed when. Um, Experiments use the placebo variable, of course, mm -hmm. because that seems to be mental, mental causation. But yeah, if indeed. we could show that with psychedelics, a certain experiences themselves cause therapeutic benefits, as opposed to the neural mechanisms alone causing them, that would be very interesting because it would seem to uh, suggest then a form of uh, mental causation as therapeutic. How that experiment would be done exactly, I don't know, because you've just put me on the but, spot. But, but. But, yeah, well, I think to some extent the experience those of us who research psychedelics have is, is somewhat supports that because our own research and others have shown that it's the, the quality of the experience that produces the change. And we at present don't have a very clear, we can't predict the quality from the the physiology from the brain changes. Mm. And that kind of gets back to the sort of fundamental, I suppose one of the constructs that, w that we deal with in psychiatry, the Jasper's construct, which is, you know, there's the difference between kind of form and, and substance, you know. Mm. People, particularly in relation to psychosis, people, the nature of psychosis, say the nature of paranoia is the same. People are paranoid, but the content can be, you know, is utterly individual. Right, interesting. And, and that's something that's much more to do with their mind and their experience than their uh, their brain, I imagine. So interesting. If that could be proved then, so if, if it could be somehow evidenced that um, psychedelic experience had this direct causal mechanism from the phenomenology to the physiology, mm. that would then have implications for the whole default view, as I said, of um, physicalism and that really it's just, you know, all mechanism and therefore anything one sees in psychedelics must be hallucination. Uh, it would rule that out. I mean, at least it would make it unstable. That's a really interesting idea. Yeah, well, we'll maybe you'll talk offline about how we might, we might have to, we'd have to reconfigure how we collected the data to probably to try to, to really get access to that. But there is one experiment which we're doing at present, which I think you'll, you'll be intrigued by and, and, and have thoughts about. So we've, Done. Chris Timmerman and Robin Carhart Harris have done uh, DMT infusion. So DMT, as you know, is a, 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 a rapid, fast onset. Mm -hmm. um, NMDMT. Yeah, NMDMT, dimethyltryptamine. That's right. And um, 
produces a very profound alteration in consciousness, often a sense that people go into another dimension. But in the other dimension, and often they often the other dimension is brighter, better, nicer. People like to usually get something positive from having been there. But also there's a sense of entities, the sense of interacting with some other being. Mm. And we are scanning the brains of people experiencing that. Mm. Uh, and we haven't done the analysis yet. It's complicated. And, you know, there's a lot of data. It takes a long time. That's interesting. But, you know, where would that fit into with the, the sense of the other? Where does that fit into the philosophy of consciousness? I mean, uh, that's that's bordering on sort of theological territory there, and I'm sort of hesitant to talk well, about Well, I'm it, going to come to that in a minute. Yeah, I'm going to come to your, your teaching on religion. <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. I mean, it's a, it's a generally, it's a puzzle. It remains a puzzle to me as to why these entities, especially elvish entities, yes, yes. are so prevalent under psychedelics. Yes. Uh, a number of theories, but none of them are, you know, solid. And... Um, so number one, that's a problem. On one end is, you know, one people would say that, well, these are real sentiences. They have their own perspective yes. and they're communicating with you. And this would then link into oh. the whole, you know, belief in angels Correct. and demons and so on of the past. On the other side, there would be people saying, well, it's just, you know, parts of your psyche trying to communicate with you and taking up certain forms, you know, archetypes, whatever mm-hmm. they may be. Mm-hmm. That's also problematic because, you know, it's not, um, I mean, I'm, I mean, it's hard to prove that as well. So, yes. frankly, I don't know, you know. No, I wasn't expecting you. To, I, I just <laughs> thought it's, it's, another, it's a topic for you to think about. No, it's certainly a fascinating topic. And I've, I've read uh, Andrew Gallimore's book on DMT and uh, his, his uh, uh-huh. health theory about different beings living in, uh, in further dimensions of space and so on. I wrote a review of that book and I spoke to him about it. You know, very interesting. But ultimately, I don't think it really works out either. I come about Humphrey Davy again. He, when he described one of his experiences, he said it was like, um, it was like imagine if a fly suddenly gained the mind of a of a person. You know, they'd have mm. no idea what was going on. You know, they would not be able to recognize yes. anything or navigate themselves, and they'd come back and they'd to fly world and they'd say, "Wow, I just had an ineffable experience." Right, <laughs> and uh, and Davy was saying this is. You know, David, like, you know, 200 years ago, so this is what it's like to have these mystical experiences. It could just simply be we are not humans, are not cognitively able to realize what the hell is going on. You know, there might be truths there of which, you know, human simply does not have the capacity to fathom in any way. You know, it's another possibility as well. I mean, one hopes not, but one should always be open to that. Uh huh. We haven't quite got, our brains aren't big enough, clever enough, smart enough. No. To, to understand yet could be religious people will say that's why you've got to believe in something bigger and better well i mean you know it's they do but of course then immediately people will say well the motive for that is just to feel better about yourself and punish your enemies and see your loved ones you know after death and you know don't die and so every every which way you turn there's there are problems on you know but i i think that um you know, there are probably actual real truths to be yielded from psychedelic experience. I don't, I don't treat them simply as hallucinations. I see them as more like a presentations of puzzles that are yet to be mm. understood. Yeah, and that's the game why I wanted you on the programme, because I think you may, or philosophers may bring, and they certainly bring a way of questioning that certainly neuroscientists would never know about. And you may actually be mm. 
bringing a, a you know a new way of answering them as well, answering those puzzles. Yeah. I think ultimately, um, you know, the philosopher's role is negative or critical. You know, they say, well, you, listen, you shouldn't be sure about this. You know, you don't know, you can't say something is a hallucination unless you know the true nature of reality, which you know nobody does. That's true, and I'm not going to let's 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 not dig too deep into that now. We've we've only got about uh, ten minutes left, and there's a few other things I want to talk to you about. So there's this concept of psychedelic exceptionalism, and this, uh, the, Carl Hart in America has mm. talked about this. Do you have any sympathy with that view? Yeah, I mean, I I can understand it. So you know, with this psychedelic renaissance, there's this movement, this move to say, listen, we shouldn't think of psychedelics as drugs. Uh, you know, mm. to, like heroin and cocaine, they are something exceptional, special, mm. and they should be treated mm. in a different class completely and so on. And um, and uh, so, but his criticism then, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, well, the problem with that is suddenly it then sort of makes heroin users and cocaine users who might be addicts seem even worse, as it were, you know, <laughs> and lead to uh, prejudice against them even more so. And I mean, yeah, sure, that's a danger. My view of it is simply that I would prefer all drugs to be regulated legally. Drug use to be legally regulated, and that includes heroin and cocaine. Um, so I'm in I'm in sympathy with that. However, I would add that you know psychedelics are exceptional, though, in the sense that they are the ones that yield these incredible experiences, experiences which are in a different class to cocaine and. And heroin, although, as I said, with opium, and you know, heroin's a type of opiate, of course, uh, they can also be uh, yield these yeah. amazing visions. So, so I'm in two minds about it, really. I mean, I, I, I always, I often say psychedelics shouldn't even be called drugs. They are more like, um, you know, some kind of uh, mind expanders. Yeah. So, in that sense, they're exceptional. But it's a pejorative term, drugs, isn't it? Absolutely, and it's more so in Britain. Yeah. I mean, you know, in America, they have drug stores. We don't have that here. We have pharmacies, right? So that's, that's probably even more worse in England, Britain, than America. But uh, another way to look at it is if you were to make psychedelics more uh, acceptable in the mainstream, that would be a step onto the path of making other drugs acceptable over time as well. So I think we should be a bit careful to immediately denigrate these these movements. No, no, that's good. No, I think you're right. We should, you know, and Carl's obviously thought... Long and hard about the uh, the issues of stigmatization of of particularly of um, Afro Caribbean drug users in the states who get a really bum deal. No, but uh, no, but I, I'm worried. I'm, I, I was asked to referee a paper today about uh, the use of psychedelic because LSD, particularly in um, in America, the survey recent survey has just been conducted and it's showing an increased use in both middle aged people and young people. And the the strap line was, "Well, we've got to stop this." And I'm thinking, not entirely sure why that should be, be because it's illegal. Oh, well, there you go. Back to the old chestnut, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And it's, uh, I, I, I am, I'm slightly worried. I don't know if you're worried. I'm slightly worried that, although that we are now in an era where there's a lot of discussion of psychedelics, both in the um, the medical community, in the neuroscience community, in the spiritual community, in the bit in the philosophical community, even more after your conference, <laughs> it's. Uh, I'm not sure that you know. I just still slightly worried that the the establishment and or certainly the the silent majority might be just stockpiling their weapons and there'll be a backlash. Does that worry you? Yeah, it does. And um, I mean, as you as you say, as you emphasise in your book, you know, we have to stop this equation of 
immorality with illegality for a start. You know, this, mm. laws change all the time, and just because something's illegal doesn't mean it's therefore wrong. Yes. That's the first step. But your second point really is is the the risk, the danger, isn't it? Which is that mm. at the moment, yeah, every, you know, it's the psychedelic renaissance in full swing. However, it's still a small demographic, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could you suddenly get backlash against the Daily Mail, something like this? Um, that's a possibility, which is why it's perhaps important not to polarize the politics of the psychedelic mm. circles at the moment. Because if you make mm. it too left-wing, which it, it would mm -hmm. more naturally swing to, I think, you would then alienate the right, and then you would mm. get more backlash. If, if somehow it could be more inclusive, I mean, by, for example, considering that Albert Hoffman was centre-right, mm. for example, who discovered LSD. Oh, was he? I didn't know that. Yeah, and he was, you know, one, one of his, uh, the chapter in his book, LSD, My Problem Child, one of the chapters was devoted to yeah. his good friend Ernst Jünger, who um, coined the term psychonaut, another uh, little-known uh -huh. German philosopher. But he was, he was rather right-wing. I mean, he, was, uh, <laughs> he, he made his name by writing um, Storm of Steel, which is his time in the First World Wars as... Uh, super oh. super soldier, and then he was a Nazi captain, but he was involved with the attempted assassination of Hitler, so that sort of saved oh. him. I think he thought Hitler was too left wing, so oh. he was almost like <laughs> yeah, too socialist. Right, exactly. Socialist. I mean, he was old high German Prussian, you know, and yeah. and and so there is a history of all political science. Uh, using psychedelics, and I think it's important to at least make that clear, so that you don't have that potential backlash. Because that backlash would be horrific because that would, um, you know, then influence politicians, laws, and then it would be much harder to get funding uh, for experimentation and so on. So it's very important to have a public on your side for this. Well, I think once you've got philosophers on your side, then everyone respects you guys, you know. Uh, uh, well, it could be the opposite, actually. <laughs> um, I want to talk to you about time. You mentioned Bergstrom and um, this debate he had with, Einstein, you know, that yeah. is time a real thing or is it a perception? And, yeah. and one of the most, I mean, I remember my, my first first time I even knew what a psychedelic was, was reading Hoffman's account of how it took him seven hours or so to cycle home. <laughs> That's telling us something about time perception, isn't it? Yeah. What does it, what does it tell a philosopher about time perception? A lot of, there's a lot of aspects to it. I mean, um, you know, Bertrand Russell, the epitome of English philosophy. He had a mystical experience, and um, not due to a psychedelic drug, but but he wrote a book as well called Mysticism and Logic. And in it, one of the the few criteria for a mystical experience was the unreality of time. Uh -huh. so it seems from reports and experience that seeing sort of time stopping is quite a prevalent experience. Mm -hmm. And then you see that fits into a lot of idealism because idealism, like Kant, they say that, uh, I mean, the argument is that time is not real. It's a projection of our minds, like space, like matter, mm -hmm. as you see. What's what's crucial is idea. Uh -huh. So yeah. if that were real, if, if you were an idealist and you then had an experience which was timeless, um, that would be sort of experiential validation of a very what mm -hmm. had hitherto been a me very metaphysical point. Uh, I mean, that's one aspect of it. Um, another one is a lot of um, phenomenologists, so people who study, you know, don't care so much about the relation between matter and mind, but care more about what the mind actually is. One one important aspect of that is analyzing the specious present, and that 
means the duration or the length of time of the present moment. And, mm -hmm. you know, scientifically, you can't say how long the present is. It's not an absolute measure <laughs> one can make. But nonetheless, mm -hmm. in terms of experience, it is, you know, the prime aspect of reality. And, mm -hmm. um, and so it's very interesting to note that psychedelics can extend or contract that species present. I mean, sometimes, for example, when you see trails, it's almost as if you're seeing, you know, a few seconds in one moment, right? That's true. You are, yes. Interesting. Another interesting aspect about that is that, yeah, there is no absolute species present. I mean, there's, there's no objective reality as to how long the species present is. It's conditioned by experience itself. So then um, by taking psychedelic psychedelics, you're actually changing that duration, which is um, important in terms of understanding the nature of time in itself. Um, I should also say, with regard to time, and you know, Minkowski, Einstein's maths teacher, and Einstein himself, of course, claimed time was the fourth dimension of space. Yes. Yes. And, um, and that means really, and, and Einstein said in a letter to a bereaved widow that um, we in physics don't really believe in time. You know, this is an illusion created mm -hmm. by our minds. So, again, if that were to be the case, I mean, that's now physics rather than metaphysics, but if, mm -hmm. that, if that were to be the case, then, again, a, a psychedelic experience will not yield you mere hallucinations about uh, time and species presence and so on. Mm -hmm. it, will, it might actually give you um, veridical knowledge, in other words, real knowledge. Yes. So, uh, I suppose, again, my point is, is negative. You know, you should be very careful about... Mm -hmm. um, uh, tagging things with the notion of a hallucination or illusion when we don't know the real reality of the world, the universe. And even, of course, Minkowski, uh, Einsteinian relativity is, um, you know, it's not universally ag agreed upon. And it doesn't, of course, famously cohere with quantum physics. So we know that science has not reached the end yet. We know that for sure. Phys mm -hmm. Physicists disagree in fundamental ways about the nature of reality, like, for example, whether there are 11 dimensions or three or four. Yeah. Um, so before we know that, we can't say that, you know, uh, someone seeing 11 dimensions on DMT uh, is a hallucination or not, right? Peter, that's a fantastic place in which to stop. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your knowledge and uh, your wisdom with us. And uh, uh, My pleasure. I'm looking forward to taking part in your conference. Uh, and uh, do you want to tell people again when it is and what it's called so they can find it? Yes, at the University of Exeter, um, starting from the 14th of April 2021 for three days, we will be holding then yeah, the philosophy of psychedelics. We'll have a number of philosophers speaking about different aspects of this emerging field. Uh, we've got a associated book, probably published by Bloomsbury, coming out hopefully on the same date as well. Um, I'm looking forward to the joint paper that you and I might write on sort of uh, mm -hmm. the philosophy and the science of psychedelics, sort of bridging these two worlds. There's a website, philosophyofpsychedelics.com, where you can get a bit more information. It's um, Professor Christine Hauskeller, who's my uh, supervisor there. She's sort of heading it in a way. Um, but we've also got a lot of help from an organization and funding from um, certain Americans uh, centered around the Center for Process Studies in America, uh, which is fundamentally about Whitehead's philosophy. So um, a lot of interesting uh, connections to be made. It's something very new 
Um, but we've we I mean when it when it was first, we the tickets sold out almost immediately uh, when we first put put them on sale. But we had to of course reimburse everyone. But nonetheless, um, it will be popular. The tickets not yet on sale, but well, I'll tweet when they go on sale because I'm looking forward to being there. Yeah. Peter, thanks again. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing uh, with us and uh, keep up the good work. It's, well, you uh, too, David. I, I'll do my best, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, we'll speak soon. And I look forward to writing that paper with you. Excellent. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Wow, well, that was quite a, <laughs> a tour de force of the, the history of psychedelics, the history of philosophy, the history of humankind almost, and uh, with a bit of chemistry thrown in. Make a note of the books. I think they're probably all worth reading, but uh, it'll probably take you a year or so to go through them. Uh, and of course, if you're interested, then maybe uh, sign up to the conference at Exeter next year. And uh, as soon as I know about it, I will tweet about it so you can follow me on Twitter and find out. And of course, uh, it would be great if you could all follow Drug Science on Twitter, share the podcast and share our uh, our cause and our, our vision with your friends. And ideally, become a, a Drug Science community member because that way you support our enterprise, you support our vision, you get access to Drug Science events and uh, you progress us and everyone else telling the truth about drugs. Thank you for listening.